You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with David Skeel, who is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, also the author of uh, a number of books. I have a couple here, and um, I'm missing a couple. The ones I have with me are Icarus in the Boardroom, which is from about 2005, maybe, and it was about corporate risk-taking, and it it was perfectly timed (laughs) right before the global financial crisis revealed a lot of risk-taking that was beneath the surface. This one came out after the financial crisis. It's called The New Financial Deal. It's all about Dodd-Frank. There's another book called Debt's Dominion, which I think was your first book about the history of bankruptcy law in, in America. And then another book called True Paradox, How Christianity Makes Sense of Our Complex World. Welcome, David. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Well, I thought we would start with bankruptcy because that is your core discipline. You teach courses in bankruptcy and corporations. And bankruptcy for me has always been fascinating because it's all about fresh starts and it's all about realizing that a company or an individual is kind of heading down the, the wrong path. And I liken it to all sorts of other aspects of our lives when we look for fresh starts. It's, I think it's in some sense something that Americans specialize in. And so it's no accident that Americans have almost perfected bankruptcy and other countries are imitating what we're doing and other companies and individuals from other countries come here to file for bankruptcy. And you've written a bunch on on Christianity and have identified some parallels between the Christian view of forgiveness and uh, what we do in, in bankruptcy law. So maybe I thought I'd start up by asking, before the modern conception of bankruptcy, I mean, the word goes back a long time, but before the modern conception of bankruptcy, we didn't treat debtors very well. There was certainly a, a, a doctrine pervasive in Christianity that we're supposed to be forgiving towards our, our debtors. But even during the Christian period, debtors weren't treated very well. We we did things like lock them up. Uh, I think what Roman law allowed you to chop up your debtor and send out the pieces to the various creditors. And so why is it that it took so long for us to incorporate this notion of forgiveness into the law of debtors and creditors? It's a great question, a really hard question to answer. I mean, the honest answer would be, I, I don't know, but the longer answer would be, I think it has to do with the development of the credit markets for thinking not back to ancient Rome, where my understanding is the same as as yours. In theory, at least, a debtor could be dismembered. But moving forward 1,500 years, 1,600 years to, to the 18th century, in the 18th century, borrowing credit obligations were seen as, as an absolute moral obligation of the debtor. And the idea that you would forgive that obligation was 
foreign under most circumstances. So one thing that happened was that loosened a bit. Bruce Mann at Harvard, Elizabeth Warren's husband, has a wonderful book on the the decline of debtors' prisons and an 18th and early 19th century bankruptcy. And that's the major theme of the book, is a shift from a view of debt as an absolutely absolute obligation that couldn't be forgiven to more of a sense that businesses at least were taking commercial risks and it was going to happen sometimes that they wouldn't be able to repay. So that's one piece of it, I, I think. I also think in the U.S. there is a Christian dimension to it. It's I've tried to trace it historically, and the lines are a little bit blurry. So if you look in the 19th century at the legislative history, you don't see people saying the Bible talks a lot about debt and debt relief, the whole idea of the gospel from the perspective of those of us who are Christians is if you are in over your head, if you're separated from God and there's no hope of reconciliation with him through Christ, you have a fresh start, to use the the bankruptcy term. So there's this um, remarkable, in my view, parallel between the way we do bankruptcy in the United States and the trajectory of the gospel in, in the New Testament. I think there's a connection there. It's a little hard to trace out, but um, in the middle of the 19th century, the Whigs were responsible for a bankruptcy law. Evangelicals were a big part of the constituency of, of the Whigs. So I think that's a piece of it. It's a bit overdetermined. I don't think there's a simple story, but however it happened, we did end up with an approach to bankruptcy that does focus on a fresh start. I I used to often think back to the famous F. Scott Fitzgerald remark that there are no second acts in American life. It's just not true. And it certainly isn't true when we talk about bankruptcy. I think it was in a Law Review article that you wrote recently where you went back and looked at Old Testament and New Testament. And it's remarkable what a big role debt plays. We've had debt since we've had people. We've had debt since, certainly since we've had agriculture. But the nature of those relationships were primarily binary, right? You would have perhaps an individual creditor and an individual debtor. And and so in that sense, you don't really need these formal bankruptcy rules, right? Because presumably if I'm the only person who's lending to you, then it's in more in my interest to keep you afloat and maybe engage in some renegotiation. It's really only when you have multiple creditors. And that's why some people say that bankruptcy is really not about the debtor-creditor relationship. It's about the creditor-creditor relationship, right? Isn't that sort of the Baird and, and Jackson view of bankruptcy? It's their view of corporate bankruptcy, is that the reason that we have corporate bankruptcy is because of a collective action problem, that if the creditors of a debtor could all get together with the debtor around the same table, they would make the deal that maximized the value of the enterprise. And if that meant refraining a bit and restructuring it, they would do that. If it meant shutting it down, it would do that. But in the absence of a bankruptcy system, they argued, it's a first come first served or a race to the courthouse the creditor that gets a judgment most quickly and attaches the debtor's assets most quickly gets paid other folks may not get paid and their argument was you end up destroying social value you end up in that race to the courthouse world you would end up dismembering 
otherwise viable businesses. So their story about bankruptcy is a story of multiple creditors. Tom Jackson's story about personal bankruptcy is not a multiple creditor story. And there, there is, is not a, an accepted simple explanation, at least from that same economic kind of perspective for individual bankruptcy. And the, the one other thing I'll just throw in there about linking it up to the Bible and to early history debt relations, the Bible does have a collective debt solution in the Old Testament. The Old Testament provided for release of obligations after seven years and every 50 years a, a jubilee. So there, there was a concept of a global approach to debt problems, even in ancient Israel. But the Bible certainly did not take a dim view of lending, right? Why wouldn't it just say, hey, give people the money, right? <laughs> Don't ask for it back, right? It's an important question. And some people take the view, even some Christian scholars take the view that there really shouldn't be lending and that the kind of lending that's done now, particularly in the commercial context, should not be debt-based lending. It should be joint ventures and things of, of that. Kind of like with like an Islamic law, right? Exactly. It's, it is borrowed. The idea, I think, is borrowed from Islamic law. In my view, that's a misunderstanding of the Bible. I think the, the Bible, when you look at the way debt is handled in the Bible, the underlying assumption is that um, debt is, is, is good, that it's dangerous, but it's good. And the analogy I make in the article that you referred to is I say, debt is like sex and fire. Both of them were really important in the ancient world, really important now, but they also have some dangerous downsides if they're misused. And that's the picture you get of debt, that people need debt, debt is inevitable, but it's easy for people to get in over their heads and there needs to be a way to deal with that possibility. But we've always made a distinction between kind of unfortunate debtors and strategic debtors, right? So you, you default because you had adverse events occur to your business or your health. And then there's folks that are borrowing with the intention of absconding, right, with the, the money that they borrowed. And so we, we still make that distinction to some degree in, in modern bankruptcy law, don't we? We absolutely do. And in, in some respects, in my view, we take it a little bit too far, that we don't allow people to discharge certain kinds of obligations that are seen as, as socially problematic. So if you have a DUI and uh, you're drunk and you hit somebody in a car and cause damage, you can't discharge that obligation which to me is taking it a little bit too far. I think you should be punished for driving under the influence and the criminal law rightly comes into play, but it's not obvious to me that you should be denied access to bankruptcy because of that. All of which is to say your idea of honest but unfortunate debtor, which is the term the Supreme Court used in the early 20th century, versus strategic debtor is very much a part of the law. Now, you also talk about how in the United States, we've gone back and forth between having what we might think of as common law solutions and statutory uh, solutions. And so we now have, of course, a, a federal bankruptcy law, the, the famous 1978 bankruptcy Act, But there have been periods in time in, in American history where we've relied much more on kind of self-help and collective solutions and 
the common law, right? There have been, and and you could say that the entire 19th century largely fit that pattern. So throughout the 19th century, there was a raging debate whether there ought to be a federal bankruptcy law or not. And there were two very well-developed sides, starting with Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton was of the view If you're going to be a commercial nation, you need a bankruptcy law to ensure that debtors don't abscond and that their assets are fairly distributed. On the other side of it, you had Thomas Jefferson, whose view was we shouldn't be a commercial nation. And he was concerned that a bankruptcy law would be used to throw farmers off of their property, that a farmer would borrow money for seed cord in the spring, there'd be a bad year because of drought or other problems, the farmer wouldn't be able to pay it back in the fall, the Northeastern Bank would swoop in, throw the farmer into bankruptcy and take the farmer's farm. So there was this debate that went back and forth through the 19th century, and we had a series of bankruptcy laws, each of which was quickly repealed. And none of that, as it turned out, involved big corporations. That was all about uh, small businesses and, and later on consumers. With big corporations, they had their an entirely separate system that emerged completely in the common law. It began with the railroads and through a common law process, uh, a, a procedure for reorganizing the railroads when they failed, as they often did in the 19th century, emerged through the courts. It was the creation of Wall Street banks and Wall Street lawyers. They took ordinary foreclosure law. They pretended like they were foreclosing on the railroad. They told the court to to hold off on having the sale. They renegotiated the obligations of the railroad and they came back to the court and said, we're ready for our foreclosure sale now. And the only bidder at that sale would be the Wall Street reorganizers and the debtor who would have put together a bid that consisted of swapping their old stock and bonds for new stock and bonds at a lower rate none of it in a statute, all of it just entirely a creation of the common law, which is all of this is a long-winded way to say there was a century when bankruptcy was largely a common law creature. Well, I mean, it seems weird, this division, because the way I think of bankruptcy law and the automatic stay is that it's beneficial to the debtor. And so it was the folks in the North that, and the big creditors that wanted the federal bankruptcy law and the folks in the South who were the ones that were opposed to it. And so this seems a little strange, particularly if you view the bankruptcy law as one that's pro-forgiveness and it was the South that was more Christian and more even evangelical. How do you explain that? The explanation, I think, is that bankruptcy law looked different back then. So what we think of when we think of bankruptcy as being pro-forgiveness and being very sympathetic to the debtor, that's where bankruptcy law ended up. That's not where it started. In the, in the beginning, bankruptcy law was seen as a, a tool for creditors. It was seen as a way that, that creditors could make sure that the debtor didn't run away and just abscond from paying his obligations. In the 19th century, if you go to a courthouse in the Northeast and look at 19th century records, you will sometimes see 
written at the top of a creditor's lawsuit trying to recover a debt, the words GTT. And what that stands for is gone to Texas. So in the 19th century, creditors were worried that debtors were, would abscond. They were, would worry that if they didn't abscond, they would pay the friend or the neighbor or the family member that lent them money, not the Northeastern creditor, the bank or the, the department store later in the century. And so the idea of bankruptcy is you would have this nationwide system that would make sure if a debtor was in bankruptcy, the court had control of the debtor's assets, that money would be used to pay creditors or the value would be used to pay creditors and everybody would be treated equally. And it was seen as not favoring debtors. One of the reasons we finally got a permanent bankruptcy law in 1898 is because of the resistance in the South and the West, Congress was forced to compromise. And the compromise was a compromise that really protected debtors. One of the things it did was it allowed each state to define what property a debtor would get to keep despite the, the bankruptcy. So you could keep your house in some states, such as Florida or Texas now. You could keep tools of the trade and things of that sort. And so bankruptcy, the idea was, wouldn't leave debtors uh, destitute. So 19th century, bankruptcy was seen as a pro-creditor thing. It was starting in, in 1898 that it shifted so that we got what we see today, which is, is much more debtor-friendly. Now, th those exemptions, I think you pointed out that there were biblical precedents to the idea of letting the workman keep his tools. Right. There really are. It's pretty cool when you go back and look through the Bible with your debt goggles on, your debt and bankruptcy goggles on. So you're absolutely right. There, There's a verse in the Old Testament that says you cannot take as collateral a debtor's millstone. And the idea obviously there is that is a tool of the trade. There's another verse that says if you take the debtor's cloak, his coat, as collateral, you've got to give it back at the end of the day. The idea being that the debtor's going to need that to keep warm. So there really is, even going back thousands of years, a sense that there needs to be a balancing. You, you need to make it possible for creditors to get repaid, but you also need to be aware of the humanity of the debtor and the needs of the debtor. Now, with, with these big bankruptcies, the railroads and so forth, you had a lot of sophisticated parties that were the big uh, creditors, the folks on Wall Street. You've had J.P. Morgan and, and all those folks, and they pretty much figured out a way to, to kind of work all this out through this equity receivership. So why then did, did they need some kind of new piece of, of legislation, right? Why do you need the courts to do anything other than just rubber stamp these agreements? The simple answer was that the courts had blessed the use of this common law procedure, the equity receivership or the railroad receivership with railroads. Courts had said, you know, this is a pretty extraordinary use of the common law, but extraordinary problems require extraordinary solutions. Railroads are essential to public well-being. There's a public interest in the railroads. So there's a lot of language, not exactly that language, but language of that sort in the opinions. 
In the 1920s, courts started dropping hints that the procedure might not be quite as kosher for non-railroads and that it's not clear if it went up to the Supreme Court that the Supreme Court um, would uphold this procedure for railroads. So the reorganizers got nervous um, about it. They also um, really wanted a voting provision. They wanted a provision that instead of having to dragoon everybody into going along, which they did by getting the bondholders to deposit their bonds, to, to give control of their bonds to the Wall Street banks that were running things, they, they wanted to have a voting provision that said, if you've if you got an issuance of bonds and two-thirds of the bonds vote in favor of restructuring, that restructuring is binding on everybody. The short answer, I think, would be in, in the 1920s, railroad receivership started showing some cracks, and it was uncertain whether it would continue to be effective. And so what the reorganizers did is they persuaded Congress to basically bless what they'd been doing all along, together with this voting provision in 1933 and 1934. And they thought they had the best of all worlds. They thought that their procedure was now had the imprimatur of a statute after being common law for all those years, but it hadn't been interfered with in any way. Unfortunately, they turned out to be wrong. As the Depression drug on, New Deal reformers looked at what was going on and they said, here's a bunch of Wall Street banks and lawyers who are helping themselves, but they're not really protecting the little bondholders they're supposed to be acting on behalf of. And uh, at the behest of New Deal reformers like William Douglas, who became a Supreme Court justice, ultimately, Congress completely overhauled bankruptcy in 1938 and gutted that old receivership practice. Now, oftentimes when I'm talking to folks about innovation, I like to say that when failure is cheap, then you can run more experiments, right? And you can be more venturesome. And so when you see a lot of bankruptcies, that's in some sense a sign of, of a healthy financial system, right? And it means that people are, are taking more risk. Now, you wrote this book, Icarus in the Boardroom, and, and it's kind of talking about situations where corporate leaders are, are taking too much risk. And I often wonder, is the problem that we have people taking too much risk or is it that people take too little risk. So certainly out here in Silicon Valley, we tend to think that the, the rest of the world is taking too little risk. When you wrote this book, it was in the aftermath of Enron and WorldCom. And you could have written it a couple years later after the financial crisis. And of course, you could have written it a few years after that with Theranos and even Silicon Valley Bank. Obviously, what we want to do is create a series of incentives that induce the proper amount of risk, right? And the right kinds of risk. Right. Whatever that means. Yeah. What do you think the major concerns are around uh, risk-taking and the incentives that corporate managers have with respect to, to risk-taking? If, if you think about the, 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 the 1950s and 60s and, and 70s, right, those were times when it seemed that the companies were all well-capitalized and they, they weren't really spending a lot of time do, doing innovating. But we also saw an enormous amount of growth during that time period. That's a... Uh... 
what are those $64,000 questions? What is, what is the, the right amount of risk? What is bad risk? And uh, when I wrote Icarus in the boardroom, there was a lot of discussion around that. When, it, when does good risk become bad risk? To take one step back to before your segue, when you said sometimes lots of failures is indi an indication of a good economy or a, a good system, not a not a bad one. That absolutely is true in my view. And there, in fact, is empirical evidence that shows in countries where you have a more generous bankruptcy system, a, a more generous availability of a fresh start, you do get more entrepreneurship, that there is a, a direct relationship between the two. But risk-taking can sometimes be problematic. And a simple example for me of the, the kinds of things to, wor to worry about, which was a piece of the early 2000s crisis, is where you have a regulatory system or a regulation that encourages people to take bad risks or encourages people to do things that are not in the interest of the company or its shareholders, that's problematic. No. So this might be cases where the, the downside is socialized and the upside is privatized? That's a great example. I mean, that's the kind of example that people talked about in the Great Recession with the banks. At some level, the banks knew that they were protected. They were truly too big to fail. And um, they knew that their downside would be socialized, whereas the profits that they made from having very little equity, their shareholders would benefit from. And there's a lot of, there's statistical evidence about things like how much equity they had and shareholder returns and things of that sort that are consistent with that. So that's a really good example. The example I was thinking of was from the Enron WorldCom era, and that is that companies had an incentive to give their executives performance-based pay under an IRS rule, which was put in place to try to curb executive pay at a time when it was executives were thought to be paid too much. The, the amounts they were paid look quaint today, but, but in the 90s, there was concern about how much they were paid. And so Congress, so the IRS, I forget whether it was Congress or the IRS put in place the rule that said, if you're paid over a million dollars a year, anything over a million dollars, the corporation cannot deduct as a um, business expense. And so it created a huge incentive to pay other than in cash. And what companies did an enormous amount of in the late 1990s was paid with stock options. And um, stock options turned out to be a one-way ratchet. If, if the stock value went up, the executive made a lot of money. If it went down, the executive didn't lose anything. And so there arguably was an incentive to jack up stock price. You know, and that can be done in a variety of ways, but one of the ways it can be done is through risk-taking. It also can be done through accounting manipulation, which is what WorldCom did. And so that kind of a rule leads to what I would call too much risk-taking. Risk but I realize it's too much risk-taking is a little bit of a funny term, and I am certainly not against taking risk. I think it's essential to the economy that, that we take risk. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to understand exactly what we mean when we say too much risk taking. Uh, and part of it is because sometimes we combine the kind of 
micro prudential and the macro prudential, right? And when there are, are these spillover effects, right? Where it's just a, the people taking the risk that wind up losing versus whether, and the people who are entrusting them to take these risks, take the loss versus these sort of non-contractual folks, right? So when you have these big spillovers. And so when you talk about the three components of, or at least the three causes of excessive risk-taking, one that you say is just plain old risk-taking. The other is competition. And when there's lots of competition, this leads to a pressure to take risks. And then the third one is size and, and complexity, right? And with size and complexity, I think there it's more about increasing the agency costs, right? So that the folks who are affected and who are in a position to potentially control these risks are either unaware of the risks or incapable of interfering with the risk-taking. How can we remedy each of these through law? <laughs> so I'll just say several things about each, but I also want to go back and, and say one more word about the risk-taking re related to the other things that we're talking about, competition, corporate size, and scope. It strikes me that it's not just risk-taking, and it, it's worth adding to that factor that the risk-taking and the failures that I'm focusing on often involves manipulation. So it's not just pure risk-taking where we see the risk that's being taken. It's there's an incentive to do something like to jack up stock price or to disguise problems at the firm that cause you to do things that one could call excessive risk-taking. And sometimes it is excessive risk-taking, but often there's manipulation and deception there as well. And a good example of that, this sort of thing, although a weird example right now, I think is FTX. I think FTX has some of, had some of these. I kept writing FTX in the, in the side notes of, as I was rereading the book, the Icarus book. It really, in some ways, that's a classic Icarus kind of failure. In some ways, FTX is a little different. They didn't have a huge number of employees. It was this, in some ways, small enterprise, but in other ways, an extraordinarily complicated enterprise. So I would expand the definition of risk-taking a little bit. And one simple response to the risk-taking concern is to be mindful of regulation that creates bad incentives in that respect, such as that tax rule. And also things like disclosure can make a difference, which is an issue with some of the complexity that came out of comp companies like Enron. With competition, I'm actually all in favor of competition, but there has been a pattern of when competition is suddenly introduced into an area, um, if you don't have regulation in place to, to curb excesses or to curb misbehavior, bad things sometimes happen. And that was true with the railroads in the 19th century. It was uh, true in the utilities industry with people like Samuel Insull in the 1920s. It was true in the telecom industry with companies like WorldCom in the 1990s. So I guess with competition, I would say when you suddenly introduce competition or you suddenly deregulate, you, you need to have a regulatory apparatus that can manage that in place. And I think that's something we'll see probably, hopefully, with crypto in the wake of, of FTX. 
The last of the factors, corporate size and scope. I think it's, I don't think there's a single uh, silver bullet solution to the downsides of that. I, I mean, size and scope, I don't think are bad things necessarily either, but with Enron, there was a problem of just the proliferation of, of entities that nobody could keep track of. It was Enron was, in a sense, an early example of the shadow banking world, which we're still worried about um, today. So all of the story with all of these at some level is regulators having trouble keeping up with the market. And in each of these areas, there are ways that the regulation breaks down because of pressures in the marketplace. I always wonder why in some cases, why regulation is needed. One would think that the folks who are putting their money at risk would do a better job of monitoring right, the, the folks who are managing their, their money. Theranos is, is a great example uh, where it seems like the investors weren't really doing a lot of due diligence. With FTX, you had Sequoia providing a whole bunch of money and they didn't seem to be doing a, a lot of due diligence. If you, if you look at the, the credit, even going back to the credit mobilier case, right? Why were the people who are investing in these railroads okay with all of this self-dealing? It's puzzling, isn't it? It is. I'm not sure that's a case for just letting the market run things itself. Right. No, clear, clearly the market's not doing a good job, but it's, it's puzzling. Why though? It is true. In some of the cases, you can see a little bit of an answer. I would give as another example of that phenomenon, the derivatives industry. What you were saying about how markets ought to be able to regulate themselves and, and sort out their own problems, that was always the argument for not regulating derivatives. So this is a self-regulating market. We've got big players involved. The big banks are running things. What could possibly go wrong? And there, I think you do have the problem that we were talking about a minute ago, is that there was an implicit too big to fail backstop there, which I think distorted the way the market was acting. With Silicon Valley Bank, in retrospect, you could say there was a similar kind of backstop in place. I mean, those folks didn't lose their deposits. All those people who put their deposits in, knowing that they weren't insured, knowing that they should have lost them if there was a failure, at some level, I think they were just sloppy, but at another level, they probably thought nobody's going to force us to make good on or to give up those deposits. Regulators are going to figure out a way to pay us off. Right. And so, you know, a lot of the discussion about regulating banks is how much of the regulation should be done by the regulators and how much should be done by the, 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 the market. And part of regulatory design is about designing regulations that incentivize these private parties to to do some some monitoring. Do do you think that we do an adequate job of engineering that third-party monitoring? There was an interesting article that you wrote recently uh, about how I, I think the way derivatives work and the way the repo market works, which actually disincentivizes these counterparties from monitoring the financial health of the companies that they do business with. If we were to think about regulating that, and I guess bankruptcy law you can think of as part of the, the regulatory architecture, how would we want to do things differently? Is it because when we, we think of these as 
derivatives law and bankruptcy law, and you think of all these different bodies of law independently of each other, and we, we don't think about how they interact with each other. You know, why is it that we, we don't structure things to optimally incentivize the private parties? I think areas of law not talking to each other is one of the problems or not understanding each other. And that was definitely the case with derivatives, in my view. The derivatives industry and bank regulators, for that matter, said bankruptcy can only mess things up. Let us do our own thing. If the counterparty to a bunch of derivatives fails, its counterparties will step in, they'll clear up the contracts, and the market will keep functioning well, that didn't turn out to, to be the case in the in the, the Great Recession. And there, there really was a, a lack of knowledge of folks within one industry of, of the other industry. And a, a big example of this with financial services and derivatives and things of that sort on one side, bankruptcy on the other, is 2008, folks at the Federal Reserve, the other banking regulators, they didn't know anything about bankruptcy. So when Bear Stearns ran into trouble in March of 2008, Ben Bernanke and the other folks involved were terrified of what would happen if there were a bankruptcy. And I think that was one of the reasons they bailed Bear Stearns out. Even six months later, when they let Lehman Brothers go into bankruptcy, they didn't understand how bankruptcy worked. They told the Lehman's bankruptcy lawyer, who was a famous bankruptcy lawyer named Harvey Miller, they told Harvey, they said, Harvey, we want to put the Lehman Brothers brokerage in Chapter 11, do it over the weekend. And Harvey had to say, you can't put an investment bank into Chapter 11. Investment banks could only go into Chapter 7. Uh, they still didn't know how bankruptcy um, worked. And it goes in the other direction as well. Those of us who are bankruptcy people have limited knowledge of financial services. Um, corporate law and bankruptcy don't talk to each other all that well. So I think that's a, a big part of it. And the distortions we were talking about earlier are also a big part of it, I think, that a market player whose downside is protected is going to uh, act a little bit differently than a market player whose downside is not protected. Now, I, when I think of law, I think of law as one of the domains where you have the largest number of generalists and the largest number of folks who interact with adjacent experts, right? Whether it's at the law schools or whether it's at the, the big law firms or, or whether it's just through the notice and comment process, I always think that lawyers are always talking to other lawyers and the bankruptcy lawyers are talking to the corporate lawyers and the corporate lawyers are talking to the financial folks. Is there any way that, that could you could increase that without giving up some kind of expertise? I'm not sure. I'm not sure that there's a simple way you could do it. It's easier. I'm a lawyer, so I see problems rather than solutions. So it's easier for me to see why you don't have some of those conversations. To, to use corporate law and bankruptcy, my two main areas as an example, to some extent, there's conversation uh, across those areas, but there's less than you would think. And one reason for that is corporate law is a state law practice. Delaware is the primary regulator of corporations, whereas bankruptcy is federal law. And it's an entirely different system. And even though it's the same corporations, many respect the same issues, 
it's two different worlds. And the worlds might be right next to each other, but they don't interact as, as much as you would think. There is some cross-discipline interaction, but there, there are some funny walls out there, and most of the walls have some kind of a historical explanation why, for instance, bankruptcy and corporate law are two separate things. Till the 1930s, they were the same thing, uh, and so was antitrust law. They were all part of the same enterprise. It really was the dramatic reform of the bankruptcy laws in 1938, which killed the old Wall Street lawyer, Wall Street banker practice, and adding the Securities and Exchange Commission and the securities laws resulted in those two areas of law just completely separating. Now, one of the concerns, of course, is that folks like Silicon Valley Bank, they obtained some regulatory forbearance to, to some degree through lobbying. Uh, in, in this book, on the Icarus book, you, you go back to the, the days of Charles Keating. I, I'd forgotten about Charles Keating and the, the SNL folks. And of course, there was a lot of regulatory uh, forbearance there. Uh, and you even went back to, I guess it was the Tillman Act, right, which prohibited companies from spending money on campaigns. Is that kind of separation important? How can you get input into the regulatory process from the private sector with without getting what you might think of as corruption? It's difficult, obviously, because the most likely regulators are people who come out of the particular industry and vice versa. So people complain about the revolving door, rightly in some cases, but there's a certain inevitability about it. You want your regulators to be sophisticated enough to, to keep a step ahead of, of the market if they can. And you're unlikely to be able to do that if you've never been in the market and you've never been in that, that industry. And so it is inevitable, I think, that you'll see the industry shaping what the regulation looks like, sometimes in good ways, but also in ways that, that prove problematic. And one of the things that got me writing Icarus in the boardroom that, that made me want to write the book was seeing historically the way that crises disrupt that pattern. So under normal circumstances, the, the regulated industry, the folks in the industry are the only people who are paying attention. And so they are going to shape regulation in a direction that that they're comfortable with. But that all changes when there's a big crisis, when things blow up. And that's when you get new regulation. And historically, often the regulation has made things better, in my view, although sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it ends up um, solving the last crisis and not doing anything to anticipate the, the next one. But you, you get this really dramatic change from industries really shaping things to all of a sudden the average voter cares about the issue and, and you get a regulatory framework put in place. Well, I mean, if this is a, a cat and mouse game, and the private sector, they're the mice. The mice have an advantage here, which is that you can pay enormous salaries. And as, as a regulator, you're constrained. You talk about how at one point, the, the regulators, like during the New Deal period, they had some really high quality people. And then there have been times in our history where the, the regulators were just completely divorced from the, the cutting edge knowledge. I mean, I remember when financial crisis hit, I think there were there wasn't a single PhD in finance at the SEC. 
And I think that's changed. I had a bunch of my students who wound up going to work for the SEC. Are the regulators necessarily going to be disadvantaged vis-a-vis these private sector innovations? I think they will. I mean, I think in the cat and mouse game, maybe we should use a different metaphor because the regulator as cat makes it seem like the cat, the regulator is going to have the upper hand. In the cat and mouse game, I think the industry is always going to have the upper hand because they're where the innovation is happening. They know what's going on. But the differential in my view, is greater or less at different periods of time. So your point about there not being a finance PhD at the SEC is completely consistent with my experience as well. 20 years ago, I might not have a single student that was thinking about going into government and business law-oriented student Now you do. Now the pendulum has swung. And so I think there are very good people going into places like the SEC and the Fed and Treasury. And I think it's it's more of a level playing field, but it's a world where the the regulators are always going to be behind. I think that's inevitable. What I find interesting is that there are so many issues in, in law that are still unsettled, even basic ones like what the heck is a corporation? I, mean, I think you wrote a, an article recently about this, and I found this fascinating. There, there are multiple competing views of what the corporation is. And, and I think the, the original idea that it was sort of a extension of the state, right? A sort of miniature administrative body, which gave rise to the kind of ultra vires doctrine. And that has been supplanted, but we still have these two separate views. The entity view and the aggregate view. And and they seem to, this debate never seems to end. And, and it's come into the fore with a couple of Supreme Court cases. It's come into the fore with the, the ESG debate. Is this a debate that's always going to continue or is there actually a way of trying to synthesize these different visions? I, my view is that they, at the end of the day, they have to be synthesized, uh, synthesized, that it's, it's not really an either or a corporation, depending on how you're looking at it, is an entity. That's one of the views is that there's a, they are there with the corporation. There is a real thing that's called a corporation that is distinct from the shareholders and employees and, and other constituencies versus the aggregate view or the contractual view, which is that the corporation is just the the sum of its shareholders, uh, really primarily. If I had to pick one of those two, I would pick the entity view. I think there is a real thing with the corporation, but it, we, I think we treat it as is different in different contexts. There are times when we look at the individual constituents, we look at the CEO, we look at Sam Bankman-Fried of FTX and don't think about FTX uh, as an entity. And other times when it's clear we're thinking of there being an entity there. One of the interesting, or a couple interesting things about the Supreme Court's treatment of these issues, the nature of the corporation has come up in some very big recent cases, Citizens United on campaign finance 
and Hobby Lobby on whether a corporation can be religiously oriented and is protected by religious freedom protections. Um, both raise that issue. The Supreme Court, first of all, doesn't care about this issue. I was talking in an, at an event at Penn with one of the litigator who won the Hobby Lobby case and asked him, what theory of the corporation were you working with? And he looked at me like I was a Martian <laughs> or something like, who would care what theory of a corporation we're, we're working with? But the second thing is the Supreme Court has very much seems to have the view that a corporation is just its shareholders, that there's no there there, that a, share, a corporation is a projection of the shareholders who make it up, which is, in my view, as a complete theory of the corporation, it's just implausible. You know, it's okay in Hobby Lobby to say that the corporation reflects the religious views of the one family that holds all the stock in Hobby Lobby, but it's a little tougher to say that Coca-Cola reflects the views of all the shareholders of Coca-Cola, but that's what the Supreme Court's idea of the corporation seems to imply. So hopefully the Supreme Court will be forced to think a little more deeply about what a corporation is in the future. Yeah, and what's interesting is you said that one group tends to emphasize the responsibilities of the corporation and one seems to emphasize the kind of rights of the corporation. It's really true. The folks that think that Citizens United and Hobby Lobby are the worst decisions ever decided, the folks on the left really think about the responsibilities of a corporation and think that a corporation should be regulated far beyond the way an individual could be regulated. Whereas on the right, the view tends to be, as Mitt Romney said when he was running for president, corporations are people too, and they ought to have this all the same rights as individuals do. And there's a little bit more hesitancy about regulations and the ability to, to regulate corporations. This goes back to the Berlin Means debate. It goes back to, this is this debate has been going on forever. How does this debate make its way into the whole ESG conversation? Very awkwardly. And so, so well, in some ways, it's simple that for folks who are enthusiastic about ESG, tend to have a view of the corporation as a, a thing, as a, there is a there there. They tend to have a view that corporations should be subject to to extensive regulation, and they tend to be skeptical of the view that corporations are just there for their shareholders. They insist that you need to focus on the employees, you need to focus on the environmental implications of what the, the corporation does. So from one perspective, ESG um, is just a natural extension of what they already believed about the corporation. I guess you could say from the other perspective, it is too, that folks who think that uh, a corporation, it, there's not really a there there, the corporations are really just like people and they ought to have all the same protections as people would say we shouldn't be imposing this new set of obligations on the corporation. We should just let the corporation focus on its shareholders and its shareholders' um, welfare and these other considerations 
can be regulated by other areas of law or the corporation can, the market can force them to take them into consideration, but we, we shouldn't have the government telling them what to, what to do. So I guess you could say ESG maps on to these different views. It, it really has destabilized thinking about corporations because for a generation, people just assumed that corporations were run for their shareholders. I mean, the old Milton Friedman view was a standard view, even of people whose politics were very different from Milton Friedman's, but that's not quite as pervasively the case now. Now, you you wrote an article about the corporation and you cited Augustine. (laughs) I think that was probably the only time I'd ever seen Augustine pop up in any corporate law articles. Do you think that we failed to adequately mine insights from theological or religious um, sources when we're trying to understand the law? I mean, we will go back to to Blackstone, but we, we and we may even go back to Hammer Rabbi, and forget that that back in those days <laughs> the religion and and law were pretty much uh, unified. Um, do, do you think we we are? skeptical of any insights that might come from religion? I think we are. And another way I would put the same thing is, and with my own slant on it, would be, it seems to me that there are um, enormous religious resources that we can bring to bear on the law, but there's a reluctance, a reluctance to do that. And that uh, religious resources, my own particular orientation is I'm an evangelical Christian, and so I'm going to bring Christian resources to bear. Those resources, as I see them and think about areas of law, really have a capacity to shake up the way we think about issues and to offer new perspectives, I think, which is what I was trying to do in that little article about, about the corporation. And I think that's true of other religions as well. I'm not as familiar with other religions but it is a set of resources that have been enormously important for people forever. And there has been a tendency to view them as out of bounds. And in, in an American law, that goes back about a century and a half. The idea that religious perspectives were viewed as not sufficiently scientific. And there was a movement to make law and law schools more scientific, so they seemed more serious and more objective. And religion was, in some respect, collateral damage of that project. And that's still the case. Obviously, we're a very religious country, and saying that religion doesn't come into play you don't want to be you don't want to exaggerate it but when you're looking at scholarly legal literature or finance literature you you don't see much and i think there are some resources that can be brought to bear but it, it does seem like there are deep parallels between the way we think within the law and the way you think within a religion and the whole idea of discovering the law rather than making the law. That, that seems like a, a religious project to some degree. It's very true. And it's also the case that the way you analyze texts is very similar. I remember very early in my teaching career, 
I started 34 years ago, almost 34 years ago, I had this spectacular student who really could read statutes in a way that the average student couldn't, can't. And I later learned that he had been a Talmud um, scholar and I had spent a year or so doing work on the Talmud uh, before he came to law school. And it's a very similar interpretive strategy. So I do think there are lots of natural connections between the two. And you could go deeper, not just in the how you read, but what is their dimension as, as a long natural law tradition that would say that a, a lot of what we have as law has emerged out of a religion, a religious tradition. Do we see in, in law schools any classes? I mean, legal history is sort of a a backwater. Comparative law is kind of a backwater. But are there classes at top law schools where you can dig into the relationship between religion and law historically? There are some. I would be remiss if I didn't back up one step and push back on the legal history as backwater, because my law school, which you know, because you've taken classes at my law school, Penn, we have a number of very top legal historians who do wonderful work. There is some some religion-oriented class. A lot of law schools will have a constitution and religion class, a religion clause of the classes of constitution class. Some law schools will also have other kinds of classes. We often at Penn have short classes on Jewish law. We have a, a short-term fellowship kind of thing where we bring in top Jewish law scholars and they give a series of lectures and often they'll teach a class. So there is there is some, but I think it would be a stretch to say it significantly influences the mainstream of legal education. Most legal education is entirely secular with a few exceptions. Well, David, thanks so much for joining me. A uh, bunch of great books here, um, Icarus in the boardroom, New Financial Deal, True Paradox, Debt's Dominion. Look forward to seeing what comes next. We'll talk again soon. Thank you so much. And hopefully something will be coming pretty soon. Maybe we can get back together. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.